Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today on the program, our guest is Fadila Yahya. Fadila, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Fadila Yahya is an assistant professor in the Department of History at National University of Singapore. She has a PhD from Princeton University uh, and is a legal historian. Her forthcoming book, provisionally titled Fluid Jurisdictions, is uh, set to come out with Cornell University Press in 2020. The topic of our conversation today is Islamic law in Southeast Asia, but we're going to be focusing on a very important period in the history of Islamic law, that is the period of transformation that accompanied uh, the rise of European imperialism in Southeast Asia and the Indian Ocean more broadly. So I think we can start off the conversation by sort of explaining to the listeners who are just wading into the topic that Contrary to what one might expect with the rise of British or Dutch imperialism, a European legal system, Islamic law, which had a long presence in the region, didn't go away. In fact, it remains quite important. Can you tell us more about that context of uh, sort of the legal world of the Indian Ocean prior to imperialism and then um, how it starts to change and the role that Islamic law plays in that world? So we don't have many sources for um, what happened before colonialism. But Islamic law was very much practiced by Muslims in Southeast Asia in diverse ways. Under European rule, both British and Dutch, Islamic law was codified to some extent and also streamlined to a, to a high degree, especially in British jurisdictions in the Swiss settlements of Penang, Malacca and Singapore. The version of Islamic law that was implemented by the British is derived from Anglo-Muhammadan law from British India. So it was a very particular kind of law. Uh, one might say it's no longer Islamic law. It's a mixture of English common law and British conceptions of Islamic law mixed together and transported throughout, exported throughout the British Empire, including Southeast Asia. There are major differences between um, Anglo-Muhammadan law and Islamic law as practiced by Muslims in Southeast Asia, which is the, the main difference is that Anglo-Muhammadan law is derived from the Hanafi school, whereas most Muslims in Southeast Asia belong to the Shafi'i school of law. Can you tell us more about the formation of these communities of Muslims living in Southeast Asia, how they arose mm. as like mm. historical actors? Yeah. So Islam spread to Southeast Asia very gradually, very slowly, from the late 11th century onwards, right up till today. And um, it was spread by Chinese Muslims, uh, Indi South Asian Muslims, and, and Arab Muslims to Southeast Asia. And um, Southeast Asia as a region is incredibly diverse. The Muslims there belong to several different countries today and lived all across the, the, the region known as Southeast Asia. But mostly they are concentrated in the southern part of Southeast Asia, which is the island world, um, often known as the Malay Archipelago or the Indo-Malay Archipelago. Um, so that's where most Muslims are concentrated in Southeast Asia today, are, although they are found throughout the region. Um, 
so the 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 forms of Islamic law that that they practiced um, are also likewise incredibly diverse um, depending on on who they are, and it's mostly a combination of existing laws pre in the pre-Islamic period before people started to convert to Islam and Islamic law without necessarily bifurcating the two sets of laws, if you know what I mean. And this bifurcation that took place between um, non-Islamic law and Islamic law hardened only in the colonial period from the late, from the second half of the 19th century onwards. And it was done, and, and this sort of um, bifurcation done by the Europeans themselves, um, the, both the British and the Dutch, who differentiated between uh, non-Islamic law, uh, often glossed as adat, A-D-A-T, mm-hmm. and Islamic law, which is like a, which is derived from the Quran and the Hadith and the centuries of uh, interpretation that, have, that we inherit today. It's not easy to, to bifurcate the two because people have been, historically, people didn't do that. But they 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 did it. They they tried to do it, especially in the in Dutch colonial jurisdictions. This was especially the case. So, what role did Islamic law play in people's lives mm. before mm. this period of European colonialism? Mm. And then, how did that role change? What role did it play in empire? Why did the British and the Dutch need Islamic law before the period? known as High Empire in the late 19th century, Islamic law was practiced by people mostly in the realm of family law and also in certain places where the rulers were so inclined, political rule was also based on Islamic conceptions. This differed from place to place very much because the whole region was incredibly diverse. In certain places, the Muslim ruler would be more, you know, depending on his in, on his tendencies, he might implement Islamic law more so than his counterparts elsewhere, and so on and so forth. But one thing for sure, it was applied in the realm of the family. So in terms of marriage, divorce, inheritance, uh, adoption, um, and so on and so forth. Islamic law was restricted to the realm of family law more and more under European colonial rule, mm. such that it was restricted to the, basically the realm of the family in both jurisdictions in the, in, by the early 20th century. This is because the Europeans, both British and Dutch, differentiated between the realm of the public and the private, so political life was no longer was became devoid of of any religious conceptions, any kind of religious laws, be it Islamic or Hindu or Buddhist, um, were restricted to the realm of the family only. So there was a major transformation of colonialism in the Islamic world. Yeah, yeah, and this is a case we've seen in mm. many locations yes. from South Asia to. Morocco, anywhere where this uh, pluralist legal system uh, emerges. So what I find in Southeast Asia, which is quite different from the regions that you mentioned, is that one of the main drivers of transformation of this was the Muslims themselves, which is quite counterintuitive if you think about it. So what happened in the Swiss settlements was that the Arab diaspora in Southeast Asia were the ones who called 
on the British, despite being a minority or maybe because they were a minority amongst Muslims there, to take on a bigger role in administering Islamic law in 18, from the 1850s onwards, especially in the Swiss settlements. They, they did so after observing that local Muslim qadis, judges that is, implemented Islamic law often not in their favour. So these men were, you know, they were, the Arab diaspora was very male, very male, and they arrived in Singapore and they would um, likely, what happened was that they often married uh, local Muslims. Mm -hmm. They often would uh, then trade in the Indian Ocean, go on trading in the Indian Ocean, so they would go back across the Indian Ocean mm -hmm. um, west and um, leave their families in uh, Southeast Asia. And what happened was that when they returned to Southeast Asia after several years, they find that their, their families uh, are no longer theirs in a way. So their wives would have uh, divorced them and cited abandonment as a cause for divorce. And the Qadis by proxy would grant them a divorce. And their children would be raised by another person, you know, by another man, by their wife's families, and so on and so forth. And um, they were livid, of course, to find out about this. And so, in order to wrest control from local Muslim authorities, they went to the Dutch and the British. And they were more successful in, in, in the British Swiss settlements than in the Netherlands Indies, where as a group, they were the targets of oppression by the Dutch, if you know what I mean. Alongside the Chinese and other people no, grouped as foreign orientals. Yeah, whereas in the in British territory, they were exalted, being, you know, being perceived to be wealthy merchants. They were not all wealthy, of course, but they were stereotyped as being uh, wealthy traders across the Indian Ocean, whose capital the British British authorities desired, and so to appease them, the British reluctantly took on uh, the mantle of leadership when it comes to Islamic law. The British were not keen on it because the memory of the Indian support mutiny in 1857, 1858 was very much was very fresh in their minds and. They were, they were, so they were not inclined to interfere in religious affairs because they fear reprisals from local Muslim communities, from Muslim subjects, basically. Um, but, you know, in the end, they did. So in 1875, the Arab community in Singapore sent a petition, a memorial to the British colonial government, formally requesting the British, British government to implement Islamic law in a stricter sense, in whatever uh, sense that they conceive it to be, um, and um, also take on their role as judges, which is quite unprecedented because these Muslims were basically asking non-Muslims to, to take on the, the role of judges, um, basically undermining the, the role of actual existing Muslim judges and they did so because they were not in power at the time, if you know what I mean. So they didn't have clout. They were rather weak in this sense. And most, most of these Muslim judges were local Muslims. So they were Malays, they were Javanese, they were also South Asian judges. 
and they 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 argued that these uh, qadis were not uh, Islamic enough or their interpretations were wrong, you know. So they 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 very much um, adhered to a very strict interpretation of Islamic law, which is not strict in the sense that the interpretation was strict, but they defined it. They defined Islamic law in a in a very restrictive manner, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk more about that. So to sort of sum up, you have a small uh, Arab diaspora in uh, Southeast Asia as part of the Indian Ocean trade. Uh, and of course, uh, within the context of that trade, Islamic practices, we could say practices from the Islamic world, uh, legal facets play an important role in that trade, right? And in, in, in facilitating commerce. And so in that regard, commercially, Islamic law and this community are somehow important to these empires, especially the British Empire. Uh, and as a result, uh, the small community actually starts to play a larger role in how local practices of Islamic law are implemented by effectively utilizing the British imperial state. Yes. So basically, the instrumentalize European colonial rule for their own purposes, which is quite spectacular because they were not of the region and there were very few of them. And yet they were powerful enough to to try to do to attempt to do so. At least in the Netherlands Indies they didn't succeed in the end. Mm. But they tried. Um, in the British Swiss settlements they they succeeded. You know, the British took on the role of of being um legal authorities when it came to Islamic law. They they based their their rulings on the Anglo-Muhammadan legal codes from India, and also from this um, corpus of cases that that already developed by um, eighteen eighty. So because of English common law, prece- legal precedents established by previous cases um, bore upon the cases in the Swiss settlements and also in parts of British Malaya. And interestingly, um, these cases from the 19th century, from the late 18th century onwards, are still very much cited in cases involving Islamic law in both Malaysia and Singapore today, because of the because of the force of legal precedent in English common le- law systems. So this is a legal transformation that has a legacy yes, to our present yes, understanding, essentially how Islamic law, yeah. as practiced in the region today, yes, yes. came to be. So you look at a lot of individual cases in your in your work, isn't that mm-hmm. right? Yes. Would would you be willing to share some of them with us? Yeah. So court cases are my main source, I would say, and they are. One has to be attentive to um, how legalese often skew our understandings of the narrative. the 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 beauty of court cases is that stories are just presented to us like that on a on a platter and it might be it might be really seductive if you know what I mean. Um, because I look at family law, there are a lot of cases that I look at which are full of um really scandalous uh 
elements, uh, some of which are rather prurient even, and so on. There were cases involving um, illegitimate children who whose status only came out when cases are litigated in court. Um, so I, 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 I do find a lot of those. And one of the things that I have to deal with is the fact that these families are still very much with us and um, so I encounter these cases and I often have to grapple with questions involving whether to anonymize mm. people's yeah, names or not. Yeah, it's very, it's, incred- it's very difficult, especially because the Swiss Settlements is a tiny colony and everyone, you know, it's sometimes there's only one clan with that name and so you know who they are and so on and so forth. And we're not that far removed from my time period, which is the 1860s, uh, the outbreak of the Second World War. So, you know, it's less than 100 years, you know? Yeah. So when I was in, in The Hague, I was at the National Archives and I found a case involving an Indian Muslim family who were part of the Marakaya mercantile class. They are a merchant community, a mercantile community from southern India. And they were living in the town called Medan in Sumatra, which bordered the Straits of Malacca. So it's on the other side of um, the Malay Peninsula mm-hmm. in Indonesia. So it's Dutch territory. This case was in 1932, and they intended to bring a baby whom they had adopted. It was a girl, and they they intended to bring this baby girl to Singapore with them. They were they wanted to migrate to to Singapore, so they were not just they didn't just intend to travel to Singapore to trade, but to actually settle there. And at this time. Both the Dutch and the British were very concerned about human trafficking in the Straits of Malacca. The Straits of Malacca was like a hotbed of, basically a hotbed of piracy up to recently, up to 2006. It was home to 60% of the world's piracy, basically. Mm. What happened was that because they were South Asians, the Dutch considered them British Indians simply because they organized the world imperially such that there were no Asians who were independent, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody had to belong to an empire if you were not white. You're not allowed to be independent in their conception of the world. So simply because they were South Asians, they were under the purview of the British, the Dutch claimed. Um, so their, their movement was to be monitored by both the Dutch and the British. Also because they were they intended to go to a, to a British colony, which is, which is Singapore. And the interesting thing was that the baby was not theirs bio- biologically, as I said. Um, they adopted this baby and she was Chinese. She visibly looked different from her parents. And the Dutch was very concerned about this because they thought that it might be a front for the trafficking of female children, basically, mm-hmm. which was a problem, not just in the Straits of Malacca, but throughout the Indian Ocean. Yeah. There was a lot of suspicion that that children and women were being trafficked along the route for along the route for Hajj pilgrimage across the Indian Ocean under the guise of pilgrimage on pilgrim ships. So there's a lot of suspicion about that. 
So these uh, Indian Muslims, they uh, were questioned and um, their commitment to the baby was uh, suspected to be something else apart from uh, adoption, if you know what I mean. Um, and it was very it was a poignant moment for me to discover this case because my own grandmother was born in Medan at about the same time and she was adopted by uh, Marakaya merchants and came to Singapore with them. So when I encountered the case, you know, I felt something. Yeah. Yeah, personal, very deeply personal. One of the things that the, the Dutch and the British uh, argued was that there was no such thing as adoption in Islamic law. It's not allowed. And what they discovered was that it is actually very common amongst Muslims in Southeast Asia to adopt. And adopted children, strictly speaking, in, in Islamic law, are not allowed to inherit. But often, Muslim families throughout the region, if they have the means, if they, are, if they have property and such, they would actually make provisions for children who were adopted to inherit their property. Yeah, by setting up a waqf or something like that, you know, they would, or or they would utilize um, Dutch civil law or English law to circumvent Islamic law, which was easily done actually. Yeah, especially if they have they have property, so they wouldn't abide by Islamic law when it came to their uh, adopted children. So this is what the British and the Dutch discovered during the course of investigation of this family who were not named apart from the fact that they were Marakaya merchants with the last name of Marikan which is common for them and in the end in 1934 they allowed the baby and with you know they allowed the family to come to Singapore with this child with this with their Chinese adopted daughter so I've always I've often wondered whether this was my grandmother because you know they, they, no one was named except for the fact that their last name is Marikan and that's it the baby was not named and yeah so that was a wonderful moment for me <laughs> in a way it's frustrating because there are no names but maybe you know for good reason so that um, historians today are not able to divulge. Um, all these details of people's mm -hmm. family lives, maybe, yeah. you know? Yeah. Exactly. No, totally. That's uh, it's very recent history. Mm. Uh, yeah. And you see that when you look at individual families in court cases. Another realm in which we can see these issues of law and family becoming really complicated is uh, probably reflected in the fact that while of course, these European empires make a, a distinction between the public and private uh, life and how law applies in them with, of course, family life and private life tending towards a pluralistic system pertaining to specific communities. Uh, you have a lot of contact, including intermarriage between different communities. And when something arises, it can be ambiguous. Which legal system do you apply? So, you know, I want to ask about some of your research on uh, marriages uh, and relationships you found between uh, Europeans and Muslims in Southeast Asia and how the law applied there. Yeah, I'm going to talk about the case of a marriage that didn't happen 
uh, which I've published on in my article in Journal of Women's History in June 2019. Um, it involved this man known as Albert Baker, or at least that was the name that he goes under, that he went under in London in the 1880s. He had proposed to a young English governess by the name of Jenny Mile, um, who was from Brighton. And what happened was that he was walking along the River Thames one day and with her, and someone doffed his cap at him and, and said, Your Highness. And that was when she found out who he actually was, which was the Sultan of Johor, which is a state in, on the southern tip of the Malay Peninsula, just north of Singapore. And it turned out that his name was Abu Bakar. So he certainly had a sense of humor in Albert Baker. <laughs> adopting the name Albert Baker. And she was she still she was still engaged to him. Um she remained engaged to him. Um and he um later broke it off. He later broke off the engagement. She had given him a, a gift, an expensive gift in the form of a buckle, and she sued him for that. And she also sued him for breach of promise because he broke, he essentially broke a contract, which was the engagement. She tried to bring him to court, but his lawyer um, argued that as, a, as an independent sovereign ruler, he was not allowed to be tried in a British court anywhere in the world, including in London. And so he, he uh, went you know, scot-free and... Um, did not have to pay her any compensation or damages or any, anything like that. The case had a bearing on international law because it was established that fact was that principle was established that a that a that independent sovereign political ruler could not be tried in any English court in the world. So in any British jurisdiction, basically, which was really interesting because basically they had immunity. Um, basically, they had diplomatic immunity across the British Empire. Yeah, and the case had established a precedent for, for many cases afterwards involving um, political rulers. It also cemented the fact that the state of Johor was not under British rule. So that, you know, in the context of Southeast Asia, that was, that was what's relevant, that Johor was not part of British rule at all. Um, so poor Jenny Mile was not compensated in any way. The case was made public and uh, she kept a low profile after that. She was censured by her own community who scolded her in public media and such. She was mocked, you know, for entering into a relationship with an Asian person, even if he was a sultan. So she was... She was presented as a gold digger and such. Yeah, and in your article, there was this, uh, maybe we won't read it because yes. it's a rather long yeah. poem yes. about her uh, yes. case. Yeah, and it was written by someone in the legal profession who was who had contact with the case. It, it was not flattering to her at all. Um, in fact, she was framed as this manipulative woman who... Uh, did not mind being uh, in a relationship with an Asian person simply because he was a sultan and so on and so forth. And even the fact that um, 
even you know they cast they, they even cast doubt on her, her on her ignorance of his identity when he was masquerading as Albert Baker the the poem implies that she had known about his identity all along and she was trying to get access to his money and stuff like that yeah yeah and there's a lot there and, <laughs> and but it also shows how this sort of imperial context yeah. comes to the metropole in a Basically, really weird yes, way in this yes. case and in, in, in people's family life can we talk about m- maybe another case a case rooted in, in southeast asia like what was happening uh in in some of these sort of similar situations yeah so in the street settlements itself in singapore in the 1890s there was a man who actually financed albert baker's travels on his grand tour of europe um and his name was said muhammad al-sagaf he was he's arab and he was dubbed the the richest merchant um in in singapore at the time and he was like it's like in the who's who that the that, that British publishers uh, published every year, you know. So he was well known throughout the world. He was um, he owned a shipping company, and so on. And um, in sometime in eighteen sometime in eighteen eighty nine, if I'm not wrong, he encountered a girl who is half Polish, half Austrian, with her Polish and Austrian parents. Um, they had sailed from Alexandria to Singapore and they intended to go to Shanghai uh, to set up a business there. Um, and she was only 17 and Said Muhammad encountered her and offered to put the family up in his bungalow in Singapore. And so they went and then three days after they started to live there, he visited her and propositioned her and she slept with him and she uh became pregnant and he gave her poison to induce a miscarriage and she didn't take it she went to the police instead and the police was inclined to help her and her family but the courts were not so it was very interesting for me to see the tension between the police and the and the and, and the court and the judges and how they were um, not in agreement with each other the police were very much intent on prosecuting said muhammad and his assistant for the crime of giving poison to induce a miscarriage in someone but the judges aren't abashedly would say things like but he's so important you know and he's he's a rich man are you sure you want to do this and in any case the you know the case was was brought to court and there was a trial What I learned during the in the transcripts of the trial, it was published in full in the Straits Times because it, was, it involved such an important person, and because of the lurid details and it was very prurient and people were people were drawn to it. So that's why the Straits Times published it, published the transcript in full. Is that often women's voices were silenced because of a misplaced sense of decorum. Framed even as chivalry sometimes, you know. So they would, they would, the judge would say to to Marie Gorski, who was the girl, who was a seventeen year old girl who became pregnant, 
are you sure you want to say this in court because you know these details are rather it's not it's not suitable you know and in order to protect you uh, perhaps we should talk in chambers and stuff like that so there'll be silence when she gives a testimony sometimes and we are, we are, we don't hear her voice if you know what i mean so other people speak spoke for her so her father her mother the police they spoke for her more often than she did for herself even though she wanted to it's simply because the judge preferred for the for her testimony about what happened um in regards to her relationship with Said Muhammad and also the the inducement to miscarriage I mean, even you know she didn't take the poison but like what happened when he gave it to her and stuff like that in the privacy of his chambers hmm. so the value and the worth the weight of women's testimonies were very much evident in both cases involving Jenny Mile and Marie Gorski and even though they were white women they simply because they were not of the they, they were not upper class Jenny Mile is upper middle class though she she came from that sort of background and but then you know it's not high enough for 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 the for the british to to sympathize with her yeah in 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 the uk and for marie gorski she was destitute the family was incredibly poor you know they were bankrupt by the time they sailed across the indian ocean that's why they left alexandria because they the, the father became bankrupt in in egypt so she was treated even even more poorly by british colonial authorities you know it was implied that she was a prostitute her parents had pimped her out and stuff like that in court um so she was vilified in in court um even more than jenny mile was because of her background and a lot of this kind of is familiar mm-hmm. for how law functions in other settings with class and gender yeah. and power in general playing yeah. a big role in how cases play out. Yes. But uh, as you said, this is a period of transformation in which Islamic law is being redefined mm. in a colonial context mm. and that cases did establish precedence and an outcome of a case, which of, of course is mitigated by a lot of factors, can have a have a long legacy. So to conclude our conversation and you know, I encourage our listeners to look forward to fluid jurisdictions. Father has book when it does come out from Cornell University Press to find out more. But for the region today, for people living in Southeast Asia today, what is the implication mm. of this process from a, a legal standpoint and, mm. and more broadly from how, you know, concerning how people think mm. about Islam and what it means to be a Muslim, whether under the law or otherwise? So one of the major implications of this history, which I just described to you, is that a lot of um, what we know as Islamic law today is an outcome of many contingencies. And in my research, I found that the prominence of this one diasporic community in Southeast Asia, though small in number, in the Swiss settlements, they were less than 1%. And in the Netherlands Indies, which is now Indonesia, they were they comprised 5 to 7%. They were very much uh, prominent and their rise led to certain transformations in Islamic law, which we inherit today. So Islamic law is very much a local construct. At the same time, it was also subjected to all these um, outside forces, one being European colonialism, which a story which which, which we are very much aware of. And my story, however, um, 
highlight the role of of Muslims from other parts of the world who came and tried to change things and and sometimes they were not successful such as in the case of, of Indonesia and sometimes they were incredibly successful as in the case of the British Strait Settlements. A second implication of my research is that Islamic law in the Indian Ocean is very much a is very is a is a story of um, currents that go back and forth. So things that happened in in Hadramaut in in present day Yemen, where most of these Arabs came from, had a bearing on what happens in Southeast Asia. Um, reformist movements that came out of both the Middle East and South Asia also had a bearing on on. Um, Southeast Asia and so on and so forth. It also went the other way when Southeast Asian Muslims go to South Asia and the Middle East and and um, also influence people over there. Um, so you know, it's a very much a the Indian Ocean is a world of its own in a way. And um, Islamic law, the study of Islamic law in Southeast Asia cannot be divorced from the Indian Ocean. Basically, the third thing, the third implication is that. European European colonial conceptions of Islamic law proved to be quite useful to Muslims in Southeast Asia. Sometimes in nefarious ways, like how I described to you about how um, the small Arab diaspora in, in Swiss settlements tried to undermine the local Qadis authority successfully. But also, you know, certain devices, certain legal devices such as the powers of attorney, became hugely popular amongst the, the Arab diaspora and also the, to some extent the South Asian diaspora. It's not exactly Islamic law. It's a, it's a device used extensively by Muslims, but it's not really... It's, it's, you know, it's such a general device such that it doesn't, it's, not, it's not particular to any legal tradition, be it um, you know, any of the European legal traditions or Islamic legal traditions. Everybody used it. It's a it's a device that's that's too general. It's been used for millennia basically. So what changed during the colonial period was that the powers of attorney that were that were used, the, the way that they were crafted, the way that they were produced, the the marginalia or you know what I call the the meta text, you know like stems and and chops and seals, were very much colonial. So it seems like the 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 Arab diaspora was very much in, intent on, um, in a way, they you know I argue in my book that by adhering to these colonial forms. Uh, in the in the heavy utilization of uh, powers of attorney, in the fashioned according to colonial standards, whatever they are, they extended um, European jurisdictions across the Indian Ocean. They deepened the jurisdiction of uh, both the British and the Dutch across the Indian Ocean. If you know what I mean, the second legal device that that they used extensively was the waqf. But the waqfs during this time, during the late 19th and early 20th century, the religious endowments known as the waqf were governed by European colonial law, both British and Dutch. And the, the major limitation of this was that waqfs could no longer exist perpetually. They could only run 
up till 21 years after the death of the last living relative at a time when the work was created. And because they abided by this, again, I argue that they have, you know, their heavy reliance on wakfs in a modified sense also deepened European colonial jurisdiction over their lives. Because these wakfs, although situated in Southeast Asia, which was under colonial rule, involved the entire clan, usually. So the entire clan across the Indian Ocean in South Asia, in the Middle East, also in East Africa, because the the the, the clans were were you know were extensive and um, were you know they covered the, ent- the entire span of the Indian Ocean over several generations, if you know what I mean. The heavy reliance and usage of wafts to organize their their lives, because the wafts had already um, by this time be modified so much by European colonial conceptions of law involving property, enable these enable European colonial jurisdiction to intrude more upon the lives of people who are not even living under these European colonial jurisdictions, simply because they were part of the clan. Well, that's certainly a lot of implications <laughs> of this process and <laughs> yes. of this work. Uh, and it is fascinating work that uh, very much speaks to um, experiences of colonialism throughout uh, the Islamic world. But as we learned here, it does have some real particularities to the Southeast Asian context. So I think it's, I think it's fascinating for our listeners who have tuned into previous episodes on uh, the subject and other contexts. Uh, and I'm really grateful for you giving uh, your time and talking to us today. Thank you so much, Mo, for having me. For those who want to learn more about the work of Fadila Yahya and uh, other topics related to our discussion, we've got a bibliography on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can also find a number of episodes concerning the transformation of Islamic law, both in the Ottoman Empire and, as we've talked about today, more broadly. 